in over two decades as I span the landscape of this dramatic piece of the kingdom of God, this outpost in this movement in which we get to be a part, I think the most joyful and most meaningful work I've been able to participate in is the Become Good Soil Intensive. It started as an invitation by Bart Hansen and Craig McConnell to come to Bart's ranch and host 12 men that were asking the same questions I was asking as then a younger man, asking questions of masculine initiation of how does a man come alive? How does a man get his whole heart back? What does a man do with power? And how does a man become the kind of man that can yield and wield his strength on behalf of others? It was questions like that that led me to seek many mentors. And over years, I found a body of ideas recovered from the ancient path. And so with 12 men, we dove in at the Glove and Anchor Ranch and we asked questions, we told stories, we dove into our stories and we were in the safety of wise older guides. It was a supernatural moment for the 12 of us and we realized it was the beginning of something God was up to. It turned into a Become Good Soil intensive the following year with 12 men again at the ranch. And then it was 30 men at Bear Trap Ranch. And on it, on it went, expanding ever wider and ever deeper. And over 14 years, we've hosted 14 Become Good Soil intensives across Colorado at Trail West Lodge, Bear Trap, and Globe and Anchor, and then in Australia. And we are on the verge of hosting our first Become Good Soil Intensive in the United Kingdom. It's coming up in May of this year, 2024, and applications are being accepted. And we wanted to let you know, because we know we have allies from far off lands that we haven't connected with face to face, but this is a small intimate gathering of wise guides and younger brothers who are deeply interested in the ancient path. Men who love God, who have suffered and have become the kind of people who are ready to organize the entirety of their life around apprenticeship in the kingdom of God. And so February 11th is the deadline for applications. Uh, attending a Wild Heart Boot Camp or BASIC is a prerequisite. And we are giving first priority to residents across Europe. It's, our goal is for this to be an intensive that reaches our closest allies within the UK. So if you're in that area or you know someone who's walked in this message for some time and is interested in drawing closer, we'd love for you to apply. You can find that information under events at becomegoodsoil.com. The heartbeat of the Become Good Soil Intensive was captured in the Becoming a King Retreat, which is a way of bringing a version of that event by men like you into your local area by video session. It's all free. If you haven't heard of it, you can find that at becomingakingretreat.com and it can give you a glimpse into at least some of the heart, some of the content, some of the form and format of the mission. So all of you are invited to participate in a Becoming a King retreat. And if you 
open one of those up and list it on Wild at Heart, we can promote that to the world. And people from all over your region can find you. And I've heard many stories of people connecting new like-hearted allies, connecting with new relationships, forming brotherhoods that um, will last for the long run out of hosting a Becoming a King retreat. So either way, I wanna invite you deeper into the intensive, either through the retreat or through the upcoming Become Good Soil intensive in the United Kingdom. And now let's jump in to this episode. A crocodile attacked me and it grabbed me by the leg and it tried to pull me into some deep water and I threw my arm up and I kicked, my foot went down its throat and the croc spat me out and I pulled myself up into the branches. I was losing a ton of blood out of my leg. My, my leg from the knee down was absolutely torn to shreds. And it's a very strange thing. You know, there's a difference between rationally knowing you're going to die one day and yeah. feeling like, oh, that day has now arrived. Otto Leopold said there are some who can live without wild things and some who cannot. With that in mind, he went on to write a series of transformational essays that he named The Delights and Dilemmas of One Who Cannot Live Without Wild Things. Friends, with that in mind, I want to invite you into a conversation with a like-hearted brother in another culture who's chasing after the same things. He's responding to the call of wild, both externally and internally as a man. Boyd Vardy is an author of Lion Tracker's Guide to Life. He runs retreats in South Africa at Londolozi, where he teaches people how to recover both the track of an animal and the track of their life. I deeply enjoyed a provocative and in-depth conversation about his story. And today, it's my joy to invite you in to be a part of part one. Let's go. For our friends out there listening, to give us context for your geography, where, where are you dialing in from? So I'm calling in from the wild eastern part of South Africa, a place called Londolozi Game Reserve. The tremendous wilderness that was restored by my family over a few generations. To the west of me is the most rural western villages of South Africa. And to the east of me is 10 million acres of terrain. I'm sitting in my small thatched cottage, but there's a, a, a green river in front of me and, and sort of riverine terrain and then a big open clearing on the far side of the river. And I can see a zebra standing on the far clearing. So yeah, it's just wilderness outside the door, which is really, really special. So spectacular. It's just such a um, orientation for this conversation. Boyd, I had several people in one week reach out to me and say, have you read The Lion Tracker's Guide to Life? And I hadn't heard of it. And they said, this is a must. And when three or four people contact me in a short moment of time, I just know it's something that God's prompting me to dive into. And I've been so moved by your work and, and read the book three times. And to give a context, after three times of reading the physical book, I was 
I was introducing my son, Joshua, who's 17, to your audiobook, and we were headed out for a hunt, and we're halfway through the book, and in learning from you as a as a fellow tracker, and in in diving into these stories of track awareness and understanding how recovering an ancient track helps us recover our true track. And we got out of the truck and next thing you know, we are on hot pursuit of a mountain lion in deep snow with these tracks. We were hunting elk, but we were chasing after uh, lions because we found several tracks and four miles in, we found a fresh kill. Well, I should say it was two weeks old, but they had eaten all the, the meat and it was just a hide in a beautiful set of antlers. And here we were making a fire in wilderness so we could melt the hot, frozen hide so we could pack out this beautiful um, bull. And I think what I wanted to share that by way of introduction is your work um, inspires me because I think um, we're, we're fellow trackers. And both in the bush, I've spent a lot of time blood trailing animals as a, a big game hunter and as a conservationist, um, but also for the souls of humans that you have done a lot of work um, I- exploring kind of the the mystery and wonder of people's souls. So I would love to go back and pick up in your childhood to give kind of a context. Uh, you, you know, you're describing Londolozzi in this story. I'd love to hear more about your parents and this culture of origin that really formed the man you've become. Mm, thank you. That's a that's a beautiful story. I, I haven't done a lot of snow tracking, but to me, tracking in the snow is very similar to tracking in the desert sand because you have such a story laid out on that very you know interesting tapestry. Um, and so I really loved hearing that. Thank you. Yes. So to go back in time, you know, this my journey begins with my great grandfather. You know, some in the year 1926 when after drinking a number of gin and tonics at a tennis party in Johannesburg, he heard about some bankrupt cattle farms that lay um, in the far eastern part of South Africa that had come up for sale. And part of why they were bankrupt is because lions had been eating all of the cattle. And it was difficult terrain, thorny, scrubby terrain, difficult to get to, malaria. And as has sort of been the my family's pioneering way forever. When he heard about the sort of hellhole in the eastern part of South Africa, he decided to buy. And <laughs> he set off in the June of 1926, and he caught a train to the southern side of the property, and he bribed the train driver to stop, and then he was able to get out and, on a compass bearing, walk north until he eventually hit a beautiful ebony tree, and that's how he knew he had arrived at his property. Wow. And for the next three generations... Uh, it was my great-grandfather, then my grandfather, then my father and uncle. They came to this land essentially to hunt lions. That was the pastime of the time. And that's how my father grew up. That's how my grandfather grew up. And that is what happened on this property. You would wake at dawn. You would sit in the darkness drinking a cup of coffee and you would listen. Hopefully you would hear a lion roaring. And then you would head off to try and go and get that lion. And I'm told by my grandmother, when you look at the old, uh, her own old journals from trips here, there were animals here, but you didn't really see them. Um, Mm. Most of the property was kind of an eye high scrub. And so they were here, but you had to be able to track them and you really didn't see a lot of game. 
And that was kind of the rhythm of my family for a number of generations hunting on this land in the winter. And then in 1969, my grandfather died very suddenly. And my father and my uncle uh, were, were devastated by the loss of their father. And my father often says to me, when there's a tremendous grief and there's a tremendous loss, there's usually also the opportunity for a deeper opening into what you would call soul and what I would call the track of your life. Yes. And in the wake of that loss and in the grief of that loss, all the family advisors got together and they said, well, first things first, you got to get rid of that wild place where you go hunting lions. Hunting lions is dangerous. So that's mm. got to go. And this was really interesting to me, Morgan, is my father stood up in that moment and from a from a different kind of knowing, not a rational knowing, but rather the kind of knowing at a deeper place inside of him, himself, he stood up and he said to the family advisors who were all adults, he was a teenager, mm. he said, we're going to keep that place and we'll make it work. And the family advisor said to him, well, son, how do you plan to take care of your newly widowed mother? She needs the money. He said, we'll make it pay. We'll make it viable. Mm. And that's how my family got into the safari business. And initially, these two teenage boys, my, my father and my uncle, ran a very ragtag hunting operation. And then pretty soon they transitioned from hunting into uh, safaris. But, you know, people would come and they would have a good time. They might see an animal. Their tracking skills were quite good. But it, it was very cobbled together, to say the least. Yes. And then we had one of our first defining moments. And that was the arrival on the land of a man by the name of Ken Tinley. And Ken was one of these incredibly in tune mentors that sometimes comes into our life. And I think as men, we maybe recognize them. And as women, we recognize them as it's almost as if something in us recognizes our future. And we feel ourselves sitting forward when they talk. It's almost not rational. And we feel our bodies uh, just wanting to be placed near them. And... Well, and I'm, you know, I wonder if you've had one of those moments, but Ken came to the land and Ken was a fascinating guy. He was a high school dropout who had been admitted to university because he had um, drawn a picture of a butterfly with such intricate detail that the dean of the faculty had put him in. And after he had graduated, he had gone to do a doctorate living in a tremendous wilderness in Mozambique. And he was pretty much alone in nature for about a year during that mm. doctorate. Wow. And during that time, he attuned very deeply to the natural world. And it was almost as if he could feel the land in his own body and he could feel the rivers flowing in his own veins. And when he arrived at Londolozi uh, and he met these two young boys, he said to them, if you want this place to work, you need to partner with the land and you need to begin to think of the animals as your kin. And you need to make sure that the local people who live in these areas participate uh, in the protection of these areas and they actually can participate economically in the protection of these areas. And so they said to him, partner with the land. What do you mean? And he said, come, I'll show you. And this is really deep for me, Morgan, because he took them out and he showed them where, how the cattle had overgrazed the land as a result of the overgrazing, the scrubland had come up. And my father and uncle just thought that's the way the land was. But when Ken Tinley looked at the land, he saw a thriving wilderness that needed to be restored that was underneath it. Mm. And he showed them how to start to clear away the scrub and pack it into these deep erosive furrows where they were losing moisture. And as they started to do that, 
the grassland started to return and the soil moisture of the the soil moisture content started to rise again and this tremendous grassland started to return and suddenly animals started to appear and from the time that i was very young i watched this wild place being restored in some ways and so i was deeply deeply affected by that and i i saw nature's impulse towards healing and later in my life and i'm sure we'll talk about this later in the podcast but and i talk on it a little bit in the book but you know whenever i meet someone who has experienced severe trauma in their life uh, i will often see what i what i think of as a scrubland of defensive patterns over the top of the landscape of their being and i've trained myself to look through that scrubland of defensive patterns to the wild man inside to the wild natural garden inside and so i feel very strangely that spirit what spirit gave me in my life is it literally showed me a wild landscape restoring and it taught me that there is a a wild landscape in all of us that wants to be brought back to life and so mm. that's sort of a little bit how the origin of my life on this land has come to affect my work now i hope that is is the right direction Oh, it's beautiful. I love, I love, um, I deeply appreciate how the power of the context to shape the man you've become, as you describe as a young boy being on this landscape where in some ways we don't know what we don't know. And so we just assume this is the way the landscape has always been. But like you said, in the hands of a, a faithful guide like Ken, he was able to see what others couldn't see and do the steady work of restoration. And, and even, I, I love how you describe, like it first took the excavation. You first had to have bulldozers come to take out the scrub. And it looked like, and as you even share in the book, your father felt like it was damaging the land, right? Because it's, a, it's a, almost a violent act to remove the scrub and fill the furrows. And yet here you are as a boy watching hydration saturate the land, watching the land heal, watching the animals heal, and then the, the, just the wholeness of it, watching humans heal in that context. Haven't we seen this so much working with people with trauma? You know, the... Uh... The way that trauma freezes us and it calcifies us. And some of that early work, you know, is just a, it's the work of deconstruction. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's taking steps backwards. It's tearing some, some old things down. It's, it's just, it's cracking some old shells. And at first it doesn't feel like this is the path to life. It feels like letting go of some of this is the path to destruction, but, but later, something new can be born in that space. And the fear of what we have to let go is, is so often a doorway into, into the beginning of a new path. Boy, there's so many layers uh, to unpack of what you've shared that's just beautiful. It, it feels like I'm looking at a, a bar with this rare collection of bourbons, and I just want to take each bottle down one at a time and have a shot and just <laughs> uh, savor it with you. I really do. So I want to rewind a little bit um, because one of the 
aspects of your life where I believe God's positioned you in a, in a fascinating way on the earth for this hour is in some ways I would just name you as an amphibian that you live and then I would say thrive now as a mature adult in two ecosystems, but you were raised in one um, in an e- Eastern model, I love the term you unpack so beautifully in your book, communal consciousness, but now you do so much of your work in a Western world. And what I love about the flow in your book is you're, you're constantly coming to this juxtaposition of returning from an international flight in the fog of modernity and you're back in the wild. I, I would love for our listeners to know you to rewind back to childhood and and help us understand, uh, first off, what shaped you in this kind of Eastern, um, wild um, world that wasn't built on technology or up and to the right, more and more faster and faster, and really rooted in the the Shangan people and, and Rainius, your dear brother at arms. Can you give us some backstory of what it what it meant to be shaped as a human in a non-Western culture. Yeah, well, I think, you know, the I grew up um, on this wild piece of land and I watched this restoration take place. And from the time that I was very young, I was apprenticed to master Shangan trackers. The Shangan people are the native people who live in the eastern part of South Africa. And so I spent hours and hours in the bush with, uh, with incredible trackers. And I learned the art form of, you know, following an animal's trail across a landscape. But much deeper than that, I learned uh, how to live inside of a different set of metrics. I learned how to attune my awareness. I learned how to be naturally curious. I learned how to pay attention. I learned how the animal speaks through a kind of energetic body language. And so much of what I'm able to do now in, in my context as a servant of healing is I'm able to read the unspoken language that's inside of people in the way they move. And, you know, there's that, that's a, that's a whole, that's a whole bourbon we could sip on right there, but now sure. and, and the natural world at, it's just mind expanding at every turn. And the way that I would define it most deeply is I would say that I grew up in what I would call a relational environment. And mm. so all the time I was discovering myself in relation to other animals that could have been through encounters of curiosity that could be through tracking encounters that could be being aware of danger. But I was constantly in a kind of energetic dialogue with the world around me. And that was extremely formative for me. Um, now, if you contrast that with, with how most people grow up in modern life, you know, a technology dominated life and as in a, and a capitalist consumerist society, you know, that dynamic to me is characterized much more by a kind of hierarchical comparative dan- dynamic. And so you're always trying to work out who you are, and how you're doing instead of in relation in comparison. Hmm. And so in my amphibious nature, I have, I have (laughs) been between those two worlds and I've seen how a capitalist consumerist society structures a psyche towards comparison. And I've seen how, uh, 
a, a collective society in tune with nature structures the psyche and the soul and the spirit, you could say then, towards relation. And so that's my gift is I've grown up in contrast and I feel like, um, you know, my job has been, you know, and I've lived into that in so many ways, but, and I'll tell you, Morgan, I never thought that I would leave. uh, I never thought I would leave the bush. I thought, you know, I would guide in the bush. I would live in the bush, but it's really quite, And I I mean, I didn't even know if I would ever make it out of South Africa. Now I live and, and teach and share all over the world. And a lot of that is because at a certain point in my journey, a kind of knowing came into me um, as I got more in tune with what I would call the track of my life. I knew that I had to go and share stories with people and I knew I had to go and sit for ceremonies with people and I knew I had to go and be involved in acts of healing with people. And so I followed that from my wilderness in nature um, into the sort of rigidity of modern life. But I haven't I don't for, and people often ask me when you're, when you're in the city, when you're traveling around America, when you're traveling around the world, do you miss the wilderness? And I say to them, you know, if I was just dropped here, disconnected from my vocation, I would absolutely miss it. You know, I would find it extremely difficult, but knowing that I'm doing the work I'm meant to do makes me always feel like I'm in the wild. I'm on the track of something wild and I'm following my life's mission. And so that makes it quite a bit, uh, quite a bit more digestible. And Boyd, it sounds like, it, um, tell me if this is accurate, it's almost like you carry the wild within your soul, that the way it's formed you, it it's something that's portable because you've cultivated a way of living in relationship, of, of, of actually deconstructing that capitalism up and to the right. And so when you're in the Western culture, um, you know, it's almost like the verse in the in the sacred scriptures that would say, "Be in the world, but not of the world." You know, or or Saint Francis, I know who, who you have quoted um, in some of your work, where he says, "Wear the world like a loose fitting garment, where it touches you in a few places, but therein very lightly." What do you think about that? Oh goodness, I think that firstly, that's a deep compliment, and. You know, I also love St. Francis's other quote um, that is actually in the book, and it's definitely one that I live by. Um, Wherever you go, preach the gospel when absolutely necessary, use words. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, that is uh, something that I strive towards. And as you say, like, it's an embodied kind of sharing. It's, It's not so much about what you say, but it's about how you live. And so you know, all I do is I have come to believe that there is a place inside of me that knows what I am meant to do. And now you could call that um, trying to align yourself with the will of God. You could call that um, and like developing your connection to spirit. And yes. it comes out of uh, stripping away the layers of conditioning, all the, uh, this is what I should do. This is what I have to do and healing enough that you can feel moment to moment what life is asking of you. And I'm not saying I'm all the way there, but I am continuously in the work of trying to get in touch with that place deeper than my rational thoughts of this is what I have to do to be successful. That place deeper in me that knows how to step forward 
moment to moment and serve what is being asked of me to serve. And I call that, um, I call that place inside of you the wild self, but there's lots of different names for it a lot across a lot of different cultures, the will of God in the East, they would refer to it as the Tao. Um, and so I try to live aligned with that. And in that way, you know, I do feel wilder. I feel more natural. I don't, I don't have rules for myself based on what society says I should be. Mm. I just listen from internally and then I follow that. And it's, and you know, that's a, that's, I know that that can sound a bit flimsy, but in fact, that is quite a courageous path because when you are living like that, there's no structure. No one's telling you how you're doing. You have to develop faith and confidence and mm. you often, and there's plenty of doubt. You don't know if this is the way forward. Certainly you're learning to trust something inside of yourself. And I think often of, uh, of Joseph Campbell's quote there, that is, you know, that beautiful quote, um, follow your bliss. You know, and you see it on bumper stickers and you say, you see people saying, oh, follow your bliss. But actually that's not Campbell's whole quote. The full quote is follow your bliss. It may take you into a life where other people don't respect you, but it'll be your life. <laughs> and what he means by that is, is when you stop living by the rules of society, what I should do, what I have to do and you start living from that deeper place inside of yourself that feels magnetically called to things, that feels made enlivened by certain things, that feels ex energetically expanded by certain things, when you live towards that, a lot of people won't have a box to put you in. They won't know what to do with you. And in fact, you know, they might not even be able to respect you because they don't know what you're doing. Yes. Um, but you, you have to have the faith to keep following it. And what I've found in my own life is that many people for many years had no idea what I was doing and I had to courageously keep going. And later in my life, um, you know, it is, it has started to, you know, be more solid in a certain way and bear, bear certain fruits. And people have started coming to me and saying, I don't know what's going on with you, but I know that I want to be around you, but it takes a lot of faith to live like that courageously on the track of your own life. Mm. Mm. Oh, Boyd, um, as I'm listening to you, I am also in my mind and heart immersed in much of the body of your work. And so I know um, a lot of the depth and breadth of the story behind the gold sort of nuggets that you're offering us. And part of me wants to say, oh, let's make this a 10 hour podcast because I really want to unpack the story. You know, that th this isn't a moment that you arrived at with this epiphany of a bright light and revelation in one moment. But what I so respect about your work is it's fruit of decades of excavating, of looking inside and and um and wrestling with un what i would name is unfinished or uninitiated parts of your soul as a man and so i want to i want to visit a piece of it you you talk very boldly about this category of trauma and how and you even use the phrase in your book and then in our conversation already frozen by trauma um, you're, you're among the brave that have authentically put out your story of how trauma um, has affected, has entered your life and how it's 
shaped you and then the beautiful path and process of, of restoration to move through trauma and find that it becomes a source of healing. You use the word, it becomes your medicine, right? It becomes your way of, of offering life to others. So would you be willing to kind of turn back the clock and take us into um, some of those formative moments, like maybe perhaps like the robbery in, in Joburg where um, trauma really violated your soul. And at the time you didn't know it, but it was actually the, 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 um, seeds of a journey of restoration. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I, w- I would be happy to, um, you know, so there were, there were a few moments in my life that, that shaped me and shattered me and froze me. And, you know, to touch on a few of them, I grew up in this wild, beautiful, natural place. I grew up with these incredible trackers and I grew up watching this land heal. Um, and then when I was 10 years old and I consider this a, a first moment of freezing, I was taken off the land and I was sent to a very rigid boarding school. And there was something about the coldness of that environment and the hierarchy of the, that environment that was so foreign to a 10 year old that had, had essentially only been in nature and I felt that was the first time that something in me was frozen. Um, and then later in my life, uh, I entered into a, a period, and this probably began when I was about 18 years old. I entered into a period which I would call the dark night of the soul. Um, now, of course, having journeyed through that, I've come to know that as my doorway into the beginning of my initiation. Um and the first one was uh, during a time when South Africa was very unstable. My family had bought a small holding on the outskirts of Johannesburg. And often when we weren't out uh, at the reserve, we would base out of the small house as we traveled around. And as I said, South Africa was going through a very turbulent time. It was just post-democracy. And yet there was a lot of violent crime around. And I went to bed one night and I woke up. Um, a few hours later with my sister waking me. And as I woke up, I felt a tremendous energy in the room. And then almost immediately a gun was put to my head. And what had happened is the house had been invaded. I glanced around the room and my mother was tied up on the far side of the room. My sister's arms were bound. Um, And another woman who used to live with us, who was actually our teacher, was also tied up. And just this incredible dump of adrenaline ran through my system from being asleep to just like the most intense red line you could ever imagine. One of those kind of red lines that uh, the body stores and that it becomes very, very difficult to reset the nervous system after because you just, you wake up at gunpoint in that type of a situation and you're, it's just the, the fear and the fear of what could happen to you know, the woman in your family, it's, it's just, it was just an unspeakable terror that ran through me. Mm. And over the course of the next three hours, we were involved in a kind of energetic negotiation to try and get ourselves out of this situation um, of being constantly told we were going to get killed or the constant fear of uh, rape or abuse, you know, just terrifying. And eventually it culminated um, with me being dragged outside and a group of these men who had come in who were clearly traumatized themselves um, told me that they were going to kill me. And they pushed me down onto the ground and 
they put the gun uh, right to my head. And, and I remember looking up the barrel at the man um, who was holding it. And for a moment, our eyes connected and, and I had what I can really describe as my first mystical experience. Mm-hmm. As our eyes connected, I felt something shift inside of me, perhaps what you would re- refer to as the peace of God, that pathless understanding. Yes. Uh, and in an instant, I knew that whilst I could, you know, whilst my body could be killed, my spirit could never. And I felt this tremendous expansion in myself. And, um, and in that moment, something strange happened there was a kind of, it was almost as if the energy just went out of the room and everyone just suddenly appeared confused. Mm. And I actually slowly stood up and I walked back into the house and I got some car keys. And then I walked these armed assailants to a vehicle and I put them in it and I handed them the keys and I said, go. And they literally got in the car as if glimmered in some strange Star Wars way. And, and they left. And for a long time, I tried to integrate, you know, that experience, both the terror that ran through my system for three hours and the strange mystery of it at the end. Shortly after that experience, I was guiding a group of people down at the river in South Africa. And a couple of these folks were on the bank and I had actually waded into the water and I was walking slowly upstream and a crocodile attacked me and it grabbed me by the leg and it tried to pull me into some deep water and I threw my arm up and I was able to grab a branch and this crocodile shook me and I kicked, my foot went down its throat and the croc spat me out and I pulled myself up into the branches and my friend and tracker, a Shangan man by the name of Solium Shongo, he came running across the river and I was on the far bank. He, he jumped into a deep pool of water that he knew had a crocodile in it He got across to me and he carried me up onto the bank and I was losing a ton of blood out of my leg. My my leg from the knee down was absolutely torn to shreds. And it's a very strange thing. You know, there's a difference between rationally knowing you're going to die one day and feeling like, oh, that day has now arrived. I was losing so much blood. Mm. And so on the back end of this terrifying home invasion, I had this, you know, pretty terrifying traumatic experience. traumatic encounter with this crocodile and thought that I was once again going to die and kind of peered over that strange edge uh, into our own mortality. And in that instance, I was able to bind my leg, stop the bleeding radio for a plane that was flying over and a small plane landed and I was able to get into it. And largely due to the actions of my friend who I was with, I was able to get to medical care and survive that. All of that to say, by the time I was 23 years old, um, I was absolutely frozen inside. I had encountered my own mortality twice. I had run sheer terror through my system on two occasions. And as a result of those two encounters, and then and then thirdly, a very difficult period that my family went through, um, where they were actually sued by someone who tried, basically it was a corporate raid where they, some folks laid suit against us, hoping that they would simply run us out of money and then they would claim the land. It was just a standard kind of raid. And so for a number of years, we were in that too. And as I said, by the time I was 23, as a result of that, I had become absolutely frozen. I was extremely anxious. I hadn't been able to reset my nervous system. 
And at the same time, I felt lost and depressed. I felt like I had seen too much of the dark side of life. Um, and I had no excitement in me about, you know, what I might do with my own life. I was just absolutely shut down. I was stuck and I was lost and I had come into a crisis of meaning. You know, I, I, I did not know how to move out of this gray, anxious, fearful, lost place. Mm -hmm. And at that time I was still working as a safari guide. I was in nature, but it, it's as if I was wearing a pair of glasses that just shaded everything in a shade of gray. And in some ways, I also felt like, okay, well, you know, I have this heritage in the safari business, but what am I going to do? Am I going to take people out to take pictures of lions for the rest of my days? Um, I'm, I, I feel like that's not, that's not God's plan for me, but I don't know what God's plan is. And every time I tried to think about it, there was just this dull, fearful ache in my chest. Um, and then one day, a buddy of mine came to me and he said, you know, there is this woman coming on safari and I was her guide last year and she's a martial artist. And I really think you like the martial arts. Uh, I really think you should meet her. And so I went into the guides room where there was this board where the guides names would be allocated to clients who were coming on safari. And I rubbed off some other guide's name and I put my name and it was <laughs> one of those moments that absolutely changed my life. Mm. And this woman who came on safari, her name was Martha Beck, and she was a just a tremendous psychologist and healer and life coach. And I mean, you name it, she could do it. And on the first day of the safari, we were driving along together, and she was sitting in the in the seat behind me on the safari truck, and she said, "You know, I believe that the restoration of the planet will come out of a profound shift in human consciousness." Mm. And and I was so depressed and stuck. And as she said that, this energy inside of me just ran through me like a current, like a bolt. And I was the first time I had felt anything like that. And then, and then later we were, we spent a few days together. And then later I was, I remember I was dropping her off back at the camp and she got off the vehicle and I was holding my rifle and I was, had all my, my safari gear from a morning out in the wild. And she looked at me and she said, she looked right into my eyes. And she was this very petite, um, petite woman with these piercing blue eyes. She looked into my eyes and she said, you know, I can see, I can see what you're carrying on your heart. Mm. And I want you to know that I'm ready. Mm. And at first I was somewhat shocked. Said, you're ready? What, what do you mean you're ready? She said, I'm ready when you are. I'm ready mm. to talk about this. And there was something about the way she said it. I felt this strange feeling in my chest and then suddenly I was crying. And that, that grief, those tears, that fear that I'd been holding, that lostness that I'd been holding, that sense that I was meant to do something in the world and I didn't know what it was, that sense that I was afraid of life after what had happened to me. I was afraid of what could happen to the people I loved and so I had shut myself down. It just suddenly all broke. Um, but that certainly, it certainly wasn't like it all broke and then I was okay. Yeah. But 
that was the beginning of my journey. And over the next, the course of the next five years, she was a guide and a mentor to me. And she taught me how to heal. And she taught me how to open myself up again. And she taught me how to release the fear that was stored in me. And then she started to teach me how to track how life, spirit, God was talking to me. She mm -hmm. taught me how to put my attention on the way that certain things expanded my energy. She taught me how to be attuned to the way that joy it almost filled my body up. She taught me how to get out of the rational mind and feel what I was naturally curious about, what I was naturally drawn to, the things that ran that same electric current through me. And she taught me how to live towards that. And of course, all of my fears started to arise, all the beliefs about why I couldn't just follow that feeling in my body. And then she taught me how to question those fears. And as that happened, I started to feel this whole different current starting to move in me. Mm -hmm. And I started to feel this whole different way of being started to come forth. And what was strange about it was that all of those years of tracking, you know, when you're tracking, essentially what you're doing is you are teaching your eye and your ear and your entire body to see and attune to things that most people don't know how to see. Mm. Um, you are teaching yourself to see scuff marks and the shape of a back of a foot and how the grass lays and a bird call. And you're teaching yourself to be attuned to it. And, you know, a tracker is someone, the information is there. A tracker is just someone who can decipher it. And as I started to pay attention to this strange, expansive current of energy inside of me, I started to realize that what I was doing was tracking. I was attuning myself to the way that the, the impulse of life, of spirit, of God speaks inside of me. And as I started to do that, I all of my years as a tracker started to come back to me. Wow. And that's when I realized, you know what, I know how to do this. I'm a tracker, but I'm just, instead of tracking a lion or a leopard or a rhino, I am tracking now the track of my own life. I am tracking the life that spirit has uh, planned for me. I am tracking the voice of God and I'm attuning to that track and learning to follow it. And all of the training, all of the hours that I need, that I spent, you know, growing up tracking, I realized I need to start to attune that those same skills to this. And that is how my own healing came to be. And that is really how the body of my work was born. Friends, there's so much more to come in this conversation, but this feels like a good place to pause and to pick up with the second half of our conversation in part two in the next episode of Become Good Soil podcast. In this first episode, as you've heard, there are many themes Boyd and I touched upon. And so by way of closure for episode one and a next step for you in a very personal way, I want to invite you to consider this question. What story or what theme from this dialogue feels like it is most compelling in your story? What's resonating What's arresting you or calling you to attention or curiosity? Boyd and I touched on trauma and its lasting impact. We talked about the amphibious nature of life, of listening, of attuning to the deep voice within. 
We touched on being honest about our disorientation and the invitation to find a wise guide to lean into in a very life-on-life way into someone that's gone before us. We talked about risk-taking and how it's essential to the soul. We talked about other themes as well. And so we're just getting started and we'll pick up episode two in our next podcast. And I would invite you to pick up a copy of the Lion Tracker's Guide to Life. But in the meantime, of all the themes we touched on in this first episode, let's pause. Let's take 90 seconds. Let's recover our breath. Let's tune in to our soul and get curious about the heart of God. God, what is it that you're saying? What's compelling us to give our attention to? And what would you like us to do about it? Friends, 90 seconds just for your heart as a pause before transitioning to other things. And we'll be back together on the next episode of the Lion Tracker's Guide to Life with Boyd Vardy and the Become Good Soil podcast. I have the privilege on a regular basis to enjoy deep and meaningful conversations with like-hearted allies from around the globe. And so often I find myself in those conversations wishing others could be a part of them and to um, ask more questions and to share more ideas and to just participate um, in this global fellowship. And so one of the ways that I'd love to invite people in a little bit more is to have several upcoming podcasts related to conversation and question response and hear your questions. And so there's a function on the Become Good Soil podcast. You go under connect and you can find a speak pipe tool that allows you the opportunity to offer comments, to make suggestions, to ask questions. And those questions, at least some of them, 
prayerfully can be considered for future podcasts. So we'd love to hear from you, for me or for Sherry, for anything that's on your heart, go to becomegoodsoil.com, go to connect, and I'd love to hear your questions and look forward to featuring some on a future episode.